tonight. Amen. Amen. It's good to be back. Last week, the elders were on a retreat, so thank you for allowing us to go and not just treat, but retreat together. It was fun. It was a good time, and uh, we really thoroughly enjoy God and one another, so thank you for that grace. Uh, I want to pray for us uh, at the beginning of the book of Psalm, just the, the beginning of the 30 chapters there, uh, as a group of songs that are snuggled together and uh, they all collapse around the theme of God being a forgiving God and the joy to be found there. So I want to pray from Psalm 31 to begin our time together. Let's, let's pray. You, O oh Lord, it is in you that we put our trust today. God, let us never be ashamed. I pray that you would deliver us in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to us this morning. Deliver us speedily. Be our rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save us. For you are our rock and you are our fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead us and guide us. Pull us out of the net in which we often find ourselves ensnared, Father. For you are our strength. Into your hand we commit our spirit today. For you have redeemed us in Jesus Christ, O Lord the God of truth, and we pray to you for much help this morning. Show us the beauty of Jesus from your holy word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's summertime now. That means I've been going to the pool. More specifically, I've been taking my little ones and throwing them in the pool. And this week we went to a new pool not too far from my house. And I took a couple of my kids with me, and we took them out. They went swimming. They got done. We got back into the parking lot. I jumped in the car, turned the switch, and I heard the dreaded multiple click, right? Click, 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 meaning something had drained the battery, and I was in big trouble. And the amazing thing was, in that moment, I had what I like to call a new tennis ball moment. If you've never played tennis, you know that tennis, you might not know that tennis balls are uh, grouped in balls of three in little cans when you buy them and they're pressurized, right? And when you first open them, what happens? There's a unique uh, smell that comes out. When you first peel back the little aluminum tab, what gushes out is this aroma that I can only describe as warm, fuzzy rubber. You'll know it. You'll fill the whole room with it if you ever open a new ball of tennis, tennis ball, new can of tennis balls. And that happened to me in my car because what happened was when I figured out it wasn't going to start, it was like my heart. All the fears that were very irrational yet real exploded into my soul. It doesn't seem too scary to be stranded, does it? But for about 30 seconds, I had this wonderfully, pitifully awful conversation in my heart. Here's what I was scared of in that moment. Maybe you can relate to this. First fear, 
how in the world am I going to get home? Uh, I'm stuck here, even though I have AAA. For a moment, I was like, oh, what am I going to do to get home? Secondly, are my kids going to be safe? As if I was in North Korea for a moment. But I thought, hey, I'm stranded. Are my kids going to be in any trouble? Maybe my car might die again on the way home and we'll get smashed. I had that fear. I remember it. How much is this going to cost me? Is this the beginning of the end of my old clunker? I can't afford this. I had that fear go through my heart. How long is this going to take? All right, I'm stranded. I got control of this situation. I was supposed to be here and then here and then we're going to do this. All of that now is imploding. I was scared of that. And then the fear of man. Ah, that's nasty. I actually thought, okay, I'm going to have to get some jumper cables. And I'm going to have to ask this stranger, and that's going to be my first impression at this new pool. What's he going to think of me? There's the guy who doesn't keep his car maintained. What a loser. I thought that. That's the fear of man. Is he going to look down on me for driving a 13-year-old vehicle? Like, uh, Is he going to be annoyed that he has to take his time to jump me off? All these things were going through my mind. Fear of man. Is Julie going to be mad at me now? Because if she has to come out here and pick me up and take me somewhere... She's going to be mad. Fear of man was overwhelming. And the internal conversation that I was having, even though it lasted just 30 seconds, it was an MRI into my soul, into my heart, what I was thinking in those moments. And these fears can be very complex. They often disguise themselves. They go by many names. You may call your fears anxieties or concerns or doubts, or jitters, or panics, or worries, terrors, agitations, misgivings, phobias, scares, and suspicions. But today we're going to use the biblical word of fear, being afraid, as a catch-all term to encompass all of these complex emotions that we're all familiar with in different life circumstances. Even though they're layered and nuanced and multifaceted, the Bible speaks to such fears. And I'm so thankful as we've been walking through the book of Luke today, we're going to come to three different stories. And through these three different stories, I want you to do a couple of things as we read them, okay? The first one is I want to see if you can relate to any of the people in the stories, particularly the fears that they experience. Okay, now's the time to be honest with yourself as you read these stories. See if you struggle with any of the fears that you see here Secondly, even more importantly, see if you can see how Christ comes and rescues us and frees us up to begin to overcome these fears. Okay, so That's going to be what we go after today as we turn in our text to Luke 8. Go ahead and open up your Bible to Luke 8. By the way, the car situation is okay. I got a picture of my new ride up here behind me. There you go. <laughs> Notice the hubcaps in case I get particularly anxious. You got those hubcaps to take care of me. If you don't get that, ask your teenager fidget spinner, right? All right. Luke 8, beginning in verse 40. That was really John Mark's car. Chapter 8, verse 40. First story. So if you can see yourself, not in Jesus, but in the people around him. Let's read together. Verse 40, chapter 8 of Luke. 
And now when Jesus returned, Jesus had been out across the sea dealing with a man possessed with a demon. Now he's coming back and there's a crowd waiting for him. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. Not waiting for him necessarily as disciples, but waiting to see a show. Waiting with curiosity. 41, and there came a man to him named Jairus, who was ruler of the synagogue. This position wasn't necessarily a political uh, ruler as much as a pastor type, a worship leader in his uh, synagogue there. And he fell at Jesus' feet. And at falling at Jesus' feet, he implored Jesus to come to his house, to Jairus' house. 42, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now, at this point, I want you to skip on down to verse 49, because what happens is Jesus goes to see him, and on the way to see him, another story happens that we're going to skip back to, but in order to complete this story, go on down to verse 49. And while Jesus was speaking, someone from Jairus' house, the ruler, came, and he said to him, Jairus, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. That was Jesus is what they call Jesus, the teacher. Don't trouble him anymore. Your daughter is dead. Verse 50. And Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, Jesus, except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And everyone was weeping and mourning for the child. But Jesus said, do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. And everybody laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Okay, there's our first story. And here you have a man who's confronted face to face with his greatest fear. The potential death of his only child, his 12-year-old daughter. And many of us as parents... We can fathom taking on just about anything in life except for the death of a child. It can be brutally crippling, especially at that age, 12, right? They've grown up just enough. You get to know the personality. They're starting to blossom, yet they have so much more of life to live. And here this little girl was being snatched away. I've got a 12-year-old living in my house. I can't begin to imagine what it would be like to have him taken and the fear that's involved with that. And in this story, Jairus leaves the home while she's just sick, and while he's away, he gets the message, your daughter's dead. He's got to be gripped by fear. And maybe today you too are constantly aware of the frailty of life, right? Especially the lives of your children. This can lead to a deep-seated, soul-entangling fear that grips all of us. And maybe you express it by being a helicopter parent, right? The kind of parent that hovers over everything 
that your children do? You know, Dad, you're barricading the pantry with landmines in order to keep out those toxic dyes of children's cereals because you've heard that they've killed millions. No dyes in the cereals, right? You do things like that. Mom, maybe it's getting a little embarrassing when you go to the mall and you have to take Junior into the bathroom because you don't want him to go into the mean, nasty boy's bathroom alone, even though he's 12. <laughs> if he's asking in a deep voice to go shave in the restroom, you should let him go by himself. But seriously, only half-joking, we tend to obsess over safety issues with our kids, right? We know what it is to fear the loss of a child. We'll get back to that in a minute. But right now, I want to see if you can see yourself in Jairus' fear. We have this fear. Now, let's look at the second story here. We're going to be reading backwards today, so jump back to verse 42. And here's the story of what happens on the way to Jairus' house. So Jesus meets Jairus, goes to his house, on the way, like Little Red Riding Hood, a lot happens on the way, right? And this is the story of what happens in between, beginning in verse 42, about halfway through. So Jesus gets word of Jairus' daughter, and so he goes, Jesus went, and people pressed all around him. Imagine the mob scene now, people jostling him and pressing near to him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And notice the symmetry too. The girl was 12 years old. Luke tells about a woman here now who'd been sick for 12 years. In the Bible, that number often somewhat symbolizes completeness. She was completely sick. She was completely isolated. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she was completely poor too. She could not be healed by anyone. Completely sick, right? 44. And she came up behind him, Jesus, and she touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. That's all it took. Just reaching out, touching the edge of Jesus and his power goes out. And Jesus said, he stops. In the middle of this big crowd, he stops and he says, hey, who touched me? And everybody denied it, including her. Everyone denied, whoop, not me, not me. And Peter said, look, master, of course, Peter would say this, right? Look, I'm going to correct Jesus. Look, master, the crowds surround you. Everybody's pressing on you. You know, what's up? But Jesus said, no, 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 someone touched me, for I perceive the power has gone out of me. Not magic, right? The supernatural spirit power that can heal someone. Jesus could tell that the spirit had worked through him to heal this woman. 47. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she was found out, she came. She stepped forward. She was trembling. And she fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Probably something like this. I was bleeding. I'm sorry. Nothing else worked. I've tried everything. And so I touched him. And now it's dry. I'm no longer bleeding. 
Something like that. 48. And so Jesus says to her, Daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now I want you to note here, as you're trying to see yourself in the story, note here how she approaches Jesus. A lot of people approach Jesus in the scriptures, but this is interesting. She sets up an ambush of sorts, right? Look in verse 44. She came up behind him. You're thinking, why is she coming up behind Jesus? It's as if when he walked by, she hit her face. After he passed by, then she comes out, then she touches him. Right? And notice too, what makes her reveal herself? Verse 47, what made her reveal herself? She saw that she was no longer hidden. Right? Here is a woman engulfed in shame. She's so ashamed of herself, she has to approach Jesus from behind. She's so crippled by shame that only after she's been called out will she be exposed and have to come and talk about this. This woman's fear had the unique taste of shame. And shame usually comes in two flavors, right? We're shamed sometimes when someone has done something shameful to us, right? Or sometimes we do something shameful to another person and we're shamed. This woman was a victim of sorts. She had a disease that was done to her. She couldn't overcome it. It was shameful because in that culture, she probably had what we would call a uterine hemorrhage. And in that culture, if you had this bleeding disease, you were declared unclean. Translation, no hugs, no hand-holding, no family interaction probably. It was faux pas to go near this woman. It's just the way the culture worked. She had a shameful condition and she was overwhelmed by it. She was off limits. Hence the present urge to hide that we see in the story. And most of us know such fear. Some of us deeper than others. A woman named Kelly knew this shame. Even at an early age, at age eight, Kelly was still wetting the bed. And so she would wake up PJs still wet and would get all the teasing from her siblings, right? At age 11, Kelly fell in love head over heels with a good-looking boy next to her in class and he had no clue she was alive. But her friends knew that she liked him and his friends knew and she was teased mercilessly and she felt ashamed. 14, she's caught shoplifting She's shamed by a mother and a grandmother. 16, she's pregnant by a baby daddy who lives in the next town. She decides to get an abortion. And she lives and battles with that shame to this day. Shame is an ancient foe, but it is not extinct. Many of us know the fear of being exposed because we walk around feeling ashamed. That's the second story. See if you can see yourself in that story. The third story we have here from Luke, we're going to keep going backwards because we skipped this in our study. So go backwards 
to verse 22. Don't normally read the Bible like this. But we're going to do it today. Sean's not here, so we're going to do it back. Verse 22. One day, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he says to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. Now, this was before he was going to go see that uh, man with the demon that we talked about previously. Let's just get in the boat, go to the other side of the lake. And so they set out, in verse 23, as they sailed, Jesus fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water. The boat is filling up with water. It's going to sink. They were in danger. And so the disciples in verse 24, they woke him up and they say, Master, Master, we're perishing. And Jesus woke up. And he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. They were rebelling. Creation was made for harmony and unity. But since the fall, it's been rebelling. Jesus talks to it like he should. And he settles things down. And there was a great calm. In verse 25, Jesus says to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? That he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. And what's interesting about this story is that it's found in two other Gospels, right? It's found in Matthew, it's found in Mark. And in those stories, they mention something that Luke, for the sake of brevity, doesn't mention. When Jesus first wakes up, they're shaking him, and he, he wakes up. One of the first things that groggy Jesus says in the other text is he looks at everybody and says, why are you guys so scared? It's very interesting. He wakes up and says, why are you so scared? And then he calms the storm. Why were they so scared? Well, they were hardened fishermen, but they'd never seen a squall like this, right? The boat was going down. Sudden change in the weather meant there was imminent danger. The disciples were terrified. Now for this story, you might think, well, I'm going to have a hard time relating to that one because I don't fish a lot. I don't even go out on a boat, right? If it's raining outside, I stay inside. This is going to be hard for me to see myself, but maybe not. Catch the element here. It's very important of sudden change, Right? Sudden change. There are a few things that are more scary to some of us than feeling your hopes and your plans and your dreams come crashing down, slip through your fingers because someone has flipped the script. Sudden change has happened. There's a movie that, uh, a little old now, but uh, back in 2009, a movie called Up in the Air. Maybe you saw that movie. That was a movie starring George Clooney, and Up in the Air was all about the reaction to the financial recession, 2008, and George Clooney in this movie, he played a character, and his whole job was to go around throughout city, 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 in all America, and fire people. And so he was the heavy. He would show up in your office, and people would be lined up, and he would say, you keep your job, you keep your, and the rest of you guys are fired. And there's a great line in the movie, someone who's just lost their job uh, is interviewed, and this is what they say. They say, I've heard that losing your job is like a death in a family, but I personally feel more like the people I work with were my family and that I have died. Sudden change can make you feel hopeless and leave you with a deep, deep sense of loss. 
And many of us can relate to that. So in these three biblical stories, we see some complex fears here. And I'm not saying they encompass all that you're scared of when you're honest with yourself, all of your anxieties or concerns. I'm just saying they're great examples for us to work with because we see people in perilous danger. They're scared of sudden change, shame that makes you want to crawl up inside of yourself. And the fear of losing a child, these are deep, real, tangible fears that we can work with. So now let's see how Christ gets involved here. Christ gets involved with something we call the swap. I'm going to call this the swap, and I'll tell you why. When looking at the storm story, right, one great thing about reading this story about the boat in the storm is that smuggled into this text about Christ's power over all creation and his glory displayed by just speaking and telling the winds, hey, settle down, winds. Smuggled inside of that is a great opportunity for us to learn how the disciples saw Christ in the midst of their fear and they changed. You can see it in verse 25. You want to look there, verse 25. Because here is when you see the fearful disciples turning to Jesus in a state of faithless fear. They're faithlessly scared. And look what happens. Jesus says, well, where's your faith? And then they were afraid, different kind of fear. All of a sudden they're afraid, but now they're marveling. Right? They're amazed. It's the type of fear that makes them amazed. Hopefully you can see that. Because before they were scared about the ferocity of the storm. And now, after Jesus has calmed it, they're still scared. They're still afraid. But now they're afraid of Jesus because they're beginning to see the amazing scope of his power. And that's a scary thing to them. And this is actually going to be your hope as you're beginning to challenge, stand up to, and wrestle with your own fears. Because here's the truth. You can't just stop being afraid of something, right? You can't. I've tried it. I tried it with heights. I remember when I was in college and I was working on this construction site, three stories up. The foreman said, are you scared of heights? And I said, no way, man. That's because usually when I was up high, I would have something to grip, right? You walk across a bridge, a high bridge, you get arm rail, whatever. But in this job, you had a two-by-four, and you had to walk across it three stories up. And I was terrified. I found that out the first day. We had to show up 5.30, early construction site. And I had to do it. And I was scared to death. The next day, I'm there at 4.45. You know why? I'm going to beat this fear, right? I'm going to train myself to be unscared. And so I try. And it's like, nope. I try it again. Nope, still scared. Something in my hand? Nope. Still scared. I couldn't beat it. Not to mention the fear I had of other people seeing me there early trying to practice being not scared. You can't beat it, but you can swap it because we are wired to fear something. You're wired to fear something. I had an eye exam the other day. 
for contact lens. If you ever, if you ever have vision problems, you know how these exams go. You sit there, and uh, my eye doctor's got this cool machine that he slides in right over my face, and then he stands on one end, I'm on the other end, and he clicks the different lenses, right? And if you can't see this, if it's fuzzy and light, he clicks another one, click, click, how about this one? Oh, that's dark and clear. How about this one? Click, 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 click. It's all of these swaps that are going on. He doesn't swap it from, can you see this, to nothing. No, he swaps out your lenses so you can see more clearly. Maybe you've played cards before. Maybe you've played a five-card draw, right? What do you do? you got cards you don't want. You hand them to the dealer. He hands you two more. He doesn't hand you nothing. It's a swap. And our souls are wired the same way. We're wired to fear something. So the trick the counterpunch, when we get scared, we have to learn how to begin to swap the source of our fears. Right? We have to swap the source of our fears. The disciples in this text, they began to see Christ more clearly. And so they stood back in awe of Him. Picture yourself being there in the midst of this awful storm. You're scared to death. Lightning, ah, thunder. And then all of a sudden, quiet. And you're like, yeah, that guy's more scary than the storm, right? Because he's over the storm. He's more powerful than the storm. But your fear is now mixed and mingled with a sense of awe. Pastor John Piper describes this. He was in a storm, and he has described the feeling of finally reaching a safe haven in the midst of a storm. And he said this. At first there was this fear that this terrible storm and awesome terrain might claim your life. But then you found a refuge and gained the hope that you would be safe. But not everything in the feeling called fear vanished from your heart. Only the life-threatening part. There remained the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such power. The fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. Oh, the thrill of being here in the center of the awful power of God, yet protected by God Himself. Writer Christina Fox said the same thing this way. She said, to fear the Lord is to be like Moses and remove your shoes because we're standing on holy ground. It's to be like the woman at the well. Who came face to face with the one who knew her so well. She encountered grace. And she left wonderstruck. Running into the village to tell everyone. He told me everything I ever did. Now see what happens? Fear is still present. When we look to Christ. It's just not the life threatening type. But instead it's the reverent all, and it's centered around the person of Jesus himself. We're overwhelmed by his power and his glory and his beauty and there is an awe type of fear. I remember seeing this in person to a much lesser degree when I was in high school. I was playing uh, football in high school for my high school team and it was the big game. We were playing our rivals, Oak Ridge, and Oak Ridge had the man. His name was Sean Summers. They began, they, they began the season 
beating everybody. They went on to win the state title in which Sean Summers had multiple touchdowns. He went on to play for the University of Tennessee returning kicks. But on this day, they had to go through us, right? And so we're kicking the ball off. And Sean Summers is back there. He's going to return it. And I'm on the kick coverage unit. And I'm right on the end. And if you know how this works, you've got one job if you're on the end. That's make sure the ball carrier doesn't run around you, right? And I've been doing this all year. Nobody had escaped my grasp. I'm getting confident in myself. Ball's kicked. Man, we're down the field. And just like every other time, I break down. And Sean Summers just does this. Bam. That's it. And I jump. I leave my feet. He doesn't leave his. Never a good move, especially in football. And I'm flying in slow motion. And he goes about this far away from my grasp. And as I'm flying, I know I'm going to be benched, which I was. I know the coach is going to yell at me, which he did. But as I'm flying, I'm thinking, man, I've never seen a human being move like Look at his explosion. Such acceleration. I'll never even touch him. How can I ever? And there was some, all oh, there's some, I'm never going to be able to tackle this guy all in about three seconds. And boom, boom, boom. Touchdown. He scored, and it was my fault. It was a big mess. But man, do I remember that reverent awe. And that was so impressive because that urge to be impressed, it comes from God. I was created and designed to be impressed. Not by humans, but sometimes God gives you a glimpse. He really impresses you by humans so that you will turn to him and know that Christ is a thousand times more impressive. And as the disciples saw Jesus, they swapped one fear for another. You can also see this, though it's not as clear in verse 56. The story about a man with his daughter being healed. Because remember what happened in that story. Jesus came to this guy as soon as he got the news. Jairus got the news. Man, I'm sorry. Your daughter's passed away. And in that moment, Jesus says, you might think Jesus might say, I'm so sorry. Here's the king of comfort, right? I'm walking with you, man. No, what Jesus said is, do not be afraid. And then afterward, after the kid is healed, After seeing the glory of Christ and healing his own daughter, the scripture says in verse 56 that dad was what? Dad was amazed. He stood there, that same type of amazement, the reverent awe that the disciples had on the boat because Jairus' own storm was calmed by the living Christ, the living God, Jesus. He had that reverent awe of Christ. And a similar thing happens also in the story of the bleeding woman. She's been in isolation and in turmoil for 12 years. She was hiding inside of her own shame, but Jesus heals her and he absorbs like a sponge. He absorbs her shame. It's amazing. So much so that in verse 48, Jesus releases her. And what does he say? Does he say, go in shame? Go in turmoil. No, he says, go in peace. Because now, after seeing the glory of Christ, she's beginning to be free from her lifelong entrapment to shame. She trades hiding for being hidden 
in Christ. In these stories, we and in our daily life, we've got to fight to see the power and the glory and the amazing aspect of who Jesus is. You know, as we were preaching through Luke, uh, we as pastors were talking about how, how are we going to preach this sermon? How are we going to break this up? Where are we going to go? What's our direction going to be? And what we noticed was Luke has a lot of miracle story one week. The next story, guess what? Miracle story. Next story, miracle story. Next week, miracle story. It almost sounds like a broken record. And we thought, eh, hey, people are going to get sick of that? No. Luke does this for a reason. Every time you read the scriptures, more time has passed. More fears have jumbled up inside of you, and we need to see the greatness of Jesus. When these people saw the greatness of Jesus, their fears were dispelled. And that's what we need here in our lives. The third section here, I want to entitle the good news, because the question becomes, okay, these people, they walked with Jesus, they had their daughter resuscitated, she came back to life. She was resurrected there. She had her own disease. The woman with the bleeding had her own disease healed. She got to see the glory of Jesus firsthand. But I don't necessarily. Jesus isn't here anymore. He's at the right hand of God. So how do I make this work? Right? How do I regularly see Jesus in such a way that I can begin to attack my own fears with faith? Well, notice something. That's just the key. In all three of these stories, something is mentioned as a key ingredient. Right? Verse 25, Jesus asks about and he restores their faith. He said, what's wrong with your faith here? Right? Verse 48, it's more explicit. He says, your faith has made you well. Verse 50, Christ says to the dad, only believe. See the pattern there? He's asking us to trust, to trust, to trust. If it was important to them who saw Jesus face to face, how much more important is this going to be to us? We cannot physically see Jesus, but we can place faith specifically in what he has done. Well, what is this? What is the point of our faith? Well, in order to understand this, we have to begin to wrestle with what the scripture would refer to as the root of all of our fears. As you study the scriptures, there seems to be a simmering lava under the surface, a magma here that we don't normally see, and you may have a hard time actually getting to it, but it's true. The scripture seems to say that all of our fears flow from a deep-rooted sense of guilt that we feel standing before holy God. That's the story of Scripture. He's the creator God, and we're now before him, and we stand exposed as rebels. And this is the fountainhead of all of our anxieties. Theologian J.I. Packer says it like this. He says this, The basic fact is that God who made us intends to take account of us, measuring us by his own standards, and from his imminent inquisition, nothing can shield us. All stand naked and open before the searcher of our heart, and all must prepare to meet their God. But that being so, all hope is gone. For being morally and spiritually perverse throughout, we are forced to recognize that in God's eyes, 
we are hopelessly and helplessly guilty, justly subject to his condemning sentence and to that judicial rejection which the Bible calls his wrath. That's the picture of the scriptures, is that we are naked and exposed before God, and it's scary because of how perverse we are in our heart. But here's where faith comes in. Here's where faith comes in. In the death of Jesus, we are offered acceptance by God on the basis of not our own works, but on the basis of what Jesus himself has done. In fact, theologian John Calvin, when he was writing about the death of Jesus and justification, this is how he defined it. He defined it as acceptance, whereby God receives us into his favor and regards us as righteous. And we say that it consists in the remission of sins and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Hope you get that. In the gospel, Christ removes our guilt. He forgives us of our sin, but that's not all. He doesn't just wash us clean. He doesn't just remove our guilt, but he places something on us, and that's his own holiness, his own goodness, his own righteousness, so we don't have to hide. And again, one more quote here. Well, two more, really. It's another good quote from J.I. Packer on this topic. Listen to what he said. He says, so the Son of God came down from heaven in order to bring us to share with him the glory to which he has now returned. By incarnation, he entered into solidarity with us, becoming through his father's appointment the last Adam, the second head of the race, acting on our behalf in relation to God. And pay attention here. As man, Christ submitted to the great and decisive exchange. Jesus is now doing his own swap here. It's set forth in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It is that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther said, this is that mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange, our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's. And the righteousness of Christ is not Christ, but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them. So you see the swap. In order for us to change our fears and swap them from a fear of the Lord, we have to trust first that Jesus has made this great exchange. His righteousness for our sin. And our sin for his glorious holiness. When we trust in this, the fountainhead of our fears begin to vanish. Because our guilt ultimately is removed. And all the other many fears that flow from that, the tributaries that spread out from the great river of being under the wrath of God, they are blocked, they are dried up, and we are free. One writer, Sophie McDonald, put it like this beautifully. She said, this is how we fight the soldiers, the bad guys of fear. We fight them with the gospel. We have a Savior who pursues us, who makes an excruciating sacrifice, 
and who covers us in robes of righteousness, presenting us faithfully faultless before his throne. We no longer need to hide before God. We can run to God. He's our shield, defense, fortress of protection. He's the one who guards our hearts. We don't have to hide ourselves with garments of self-protection because he hides us in the shadow of, our wing, of his wings. The gospel is the answer to insecurities, paralyzing anxiety, and life-sucking fear. The blessed reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory, tenderly blasts the brick and mortar around our hearts like dynamite. He loves us too much to let any walls remain that keep us from believing we're safe apart from his protection. That's when fear usually creeps in, right? You have a wall built up that you've told yourself, without this wall, I'm exposed. And then what happens when the life circumstance turns? The wall comes crumbling down. You can't trust in the wall anymore, which ultimately is just what God wants, right? It's painful to see that wall coming down, but Christ loves you so much, he will not let these phony walls stand because they keep you from seeing his glory and his grace. Let's circle back now to where we started this sermon. I told you of some very real fears I was facing in a normal way when my car broke down. Right? Let's encounter that. One thing I said is I was scared of what people might think of me. I hate to admit it, but you're standing there and you're like, oh man, now I'm that guy who's got a crummy car and I'm begging people for help. What's everybody going to think? I battled with that fear in the moment. What should my response be when I feel that creeping in? Remember, you cannot say, don't be scared. It doesn't work. But you can swap it. I can swap it for an awe, a reverent fear of the God who always approves of me. And I can hide in Him. Not because of my merit, because of Christ alone. Right? Earlier in the sermon, I prayed from Psalm 31 which leads up to Psalm 32, which we looked at this week as elders. Listen to the truth that comes from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Verse 7 is beautiful. You are a hiding place for me. That's what it means to trust Jesus. You hide in him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. That doesn't, by the way, mean your car is not going to break down. Talking about the deeper trouble when you're scared to death because of it. You preserve me from this. You surround me with what? Shouts of deliverance. Picture a God singing and crying victory over your guilt in the midst of your fear. And you can begin to experience this swap. Fearing man versus fearing God. I can hide in God because I now live in Christ's righteousness. No matter if people look down on my old car, that's fine. I can handle that. I'm approved by God. That's nothing. Main point, all guilt before God is removed. So the fear of guilt before man can vanish because of Jesus. That's what it makes... That's what it means to have faith in Jesus during your scary times. 
Also, if you feel like you're losing control, faith says, God, you love me, and you're in control, and you got this. It's a giving away of control to God. What about kids' safety issues? We talked about that earlier, right? A fear that we, uh, many of us deal with. How does this relate? You know, I'm walking down the driveway to the mailbox. I'm concerned about my kid's safety. I've got him on a leash. You've seen those kid leashes, right? He's wearing knee pads and a helmet to go to the mailbox. I'm concerned. What happens when we tend to be a little overly possessive because of the fear we have for our children's safety? Well, consider the future effects that you might be uh, passing on to the next generation. Gloria Furman writes this wisely. He says, our obsession with safety isn't the gravest concern regarding this helicopter parenting. Risk intolerance is. What she mean by that? Well, when we spend unhealthy amounts of energy in training our children and future disciples to be afraid, don't doubt me, they, they feel it. They understand what's going on. If you're afraid, if you got the pads on and the leash, they get it. Mom's afraid, right? If you spend unhealthy amounts of time doing that, they'll subconsciously adopt our anemic view of God. They'll say, if God is not for us, then we need to be for ourselves. That becomes the mindset. I serve a God who can't handle this. I don't want to handle life on my own, right? Who needs him? He can't handle this anyway. I'll turn into myself and take on life without him. So how does the gospel free us up from using our fears to create a whole new generation of scared Christians? Well, we begin by trusting today that when God sent his son, that meant he was for us. That's proof. God is for us. In the gospel, we see Jesus undergoing a tremendous amount of suffering. But what comes out of it is redemption. Why? Because God had his purpose for Christ. And it included some pain. It included some suffering. But he never once left his son. Faith, overcoming fear, means to be in awe of such a God who would allow his son to go through this and yet Bring him out in glory. Glory not just for this age, but eternal life. Sitting with him and all who follow Jesus will be sucked up into this eternal life. We have to be in awe of a God who knows about safety issues with his children. And he knows how to catch these fears. And we also look to God as the God of mercy and justice. What we see on the cross is God perfect in his mercy in forgiving sinners, but also perfect in his justice in pouring out his wrath on someone, and that's Jesus. And these fraternal twins of mercy and justice need to be your watchwords as you're letting go of your kids. God is merciful. God is just. I don't know what happens here. I don't know what will happen when they get on the bicycle. They play in their first sports team. They're learning to swim. I don't have to hold their hand because God is merciful and justice and I'm going to have faith in that God. Paul Tripp recently wrote this. 
that when you're discouraged, run to your Lord. Run to his word. Run to his people. But don't run and hide inside yourself. Instead, remember these biblical pictures. Hide yourself in Christ. Be hidden in Christ. Take him as your hiding place when you are scared and fearful. I want us all to bow our heads now together. We're going to pray. We're going to lead into a time of the Lord's Supper. And I want you to pray without an issue here, right? I want you to take an issue before God. No one's going to know what it is. It's just you and God, and I want you to try to bring a fear before our Lord now. Express a fear to Him as you pray, you and God, surrounded by His people. This is a safe place. I want you to take a fear to God and ask Him, God, show me yourself. Show me yourself as a God to be revered, a God who is awesome. And after we pray, we're going to lead into a time of the Lord's Supper where we focus on the death of Jesus where God showed himself off the most as totally awesome and powerful and glorious. If you're a guest here, we have tables up front, tables in the back. Take the supper whenever you're ready. Bring it back to your chair. Celebrate with us. But in this moment, I'm just going to ask that you pray and bring your fears before God as we pray together. Let's pray. Father, 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 our hearts are prone to wonder. Not towards you, but away from you and even collapsing in on ourselves. God, I pray you give us a vision of the glory of Jesus. Let us be struck and trembling before him. such that like a cloud moving in and then the cloud is surpassed by the rays of sunshine. May you speak into our fears today. God, we know victory is a process. We know the journey's not over. We also know that the process of fighting and overcoming our fears We'll have milestones. And I pray, God, that seeing you afresh, the glory of Jesus, would be a milestone in our faith today. God, help us to submit to you. We're all hurting here. No one is immune to fear. And I pray, God, you show yourself in Jesus to us. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.